you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, uh, go ahead and put your hand up. We'll get a Bible into it. Uh, raise your hand nice and high, and the Bibles will appear from the back. Those of you that have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This is awkward yet? Been awkward? That was, for the time I offered giving Bibles out, that was 53 seconds. And this is what you call an object lesson. 53 seconds of silence when you're expecting someone to speak. Seemed like a long time when you're just looking at me and I'm looking at you and you're looking at me and you're trying to figure out, does, is he like spacing out or having a seizure or what's going, what is Steve up to now? You know, you never can tell around here. Uh, that was purposeful. Purposeful to give you guys an introduction. It's a period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which we call simply the intertestamental period. And it was a period of silence uh, in terms of God speaking to his people. There was a time during the days of Eli where the word of God was rare. This was even worse. There was no uh, recognized prophet in Israel. So for 400 years, there was that awkward silence. Things were still happening. Life was going on. Lots, as a matter of fact, was happening in that period. Malachi, this is a, a history. I'm not a great history guy, and I don't particularly enjoy history. But when the history is biblical history, it's meaningful and it's appropriate. And nothing that we read and nothing that you understand about Christmas will be the same until you understand why when Christ comes and, and we read the prophecy of Isaiah that his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. It won't make any sense to you unless you understand this, this time period from Malachi till John the Baptist and Zechariah and Mary and Joseph. This time of silence. And there's some time, this is so applicable because for you, you'll go through a period of time and you say, well, I'm not sure God is still with me. I know He made some promises. But it doesn't feel like, it doesn't seem like well, He's been so quiet in my life. And Christmas is a reminder that although God seems silent sometimes, His promises are still true. And he's continually faithful to his word. He is with us. So, with that introduction, this intertestamental period, Malachi 435 BC wrote during the Persian Empire. The Persians were the dominant force historically, militarily. A remnant of Judah had returned. Remember, Judah had been taken captive into Babylon. And then Cyrus, king of Persia, had said, well, you guys can go ahead, go back and rebuild. Nehemiah, Ezra, and Ezra and Zerubbabel. Whereas the, Zerubbabel was the, the link to the royal line. They all went back after their captivity, this remnant of people, and they began to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple. During that time, Alexander the Great then comes on the scene. And he Hellenizes, or Greekifies, that's for those of you that don't know what Hellenizes means. He Greekifies the whole world, basically, at that time. Um, he takes over Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, and Persia and makes them all Greek. Greek culture, Greek language, Greek everything. Antiochus Epiphanes of Syria tries to exterminate the Jews. He attacks Jerusalem. He desecrates the temple by offering a pig on the altar 
and installing an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple. Jews were forbidden to worship, circumcision was outlawed, the scriptures were burned, and ownership of the scriptures was made illegal. And many Jews were taken into slavery and tortured. Meanwhile, God is silent. The Jews revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, They won their independence and they tried to set up their own government. It was a very difficult and unsuccessful chore for them and task for them. Uh, Political sects in Judaism uh, rose up. The Pharisees, which were the conservatives, and the Sadducees, which were the liberals. And and they, you know, the, the Sadducees were in favor of being Hellenized or becoming like the world they lived in. The Pharisees rejected that. They wanted to hold on to their Jewish roots and hold on to their Jewish traditions. So they didn't get along and there were tensions there until finally in 63 B.C. Now we've come from Malachi at 435 B.C. all the way through to 63 B.C. The Jews wanted to go back to priestly rule and abolish the monarchy. Remember, the Jews had initially been a theocracy. God was to rule them. But they said, no, we want a king. We want to be like the nations around us. We want a king. So God allowed them to choose their king. And who did they choose? They chose King Saul, who was not obedient to the Lord. And and God ended up replacing him with David. We'll get into some of that as we go through. But they chose a king based on appearances. He was a great, big, tall guy, head and shoulders above the rest. He was very handsome. He looked like a king. And that's what they wanted. And it didn't work out so well for them. But, they, but now they're saying we want to get rid of the monarchy, which is under uh, the kings, and we want to go back to priestly rule. So the Romans take over the, the uh, Judea, and they abolish the monarchy, and they set up a man named Hyrcanus II as the high priest. Now, for those of you that are Bible students, what is the, the priestly line in Israel? Who, which family? Levi. It was the Levites. Well, guess what Hyrcanus was not? He was not a, a, a Levite. So what I'm telling you is the priesthood now was not Levitical, it was political. Just a way you can remember that. The priesthood was no longer Levitical, it was political. And all during that intertestamental period, all of this had gotten so confused. The, the priesthood had been... Um, degraded. And now they want to get rid of the monarchy. They want to go back to a priestly rule. So Hyrcanus II, who's not a Levite, there is appointed as the high priest. And then a few years later in 40 BC, they appoint Herod as the king or the ruler over the Jews. That would be Herod the Great. Now, again, if you know your Bible history, God chose to work through uh, Jacob or Esau. They were brothers, right? Twins. Which one did God choose to work through? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. His line, the line of faith is going to continue through Jacob. And, and the kingly line is continuing that way too. Herod was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. So now we have a political, not a Levitical priesthood. And we have a kingship that's not through Jacob, but through Esau. And God is silent. And God is silent. And the people wonder. There were those that were faithful. There was Anna. And there was Simeon that were waiting for the consolation of Israel. That were waiting for God to speak. For God to move on their behalf. For God to keep and continue to keep the promises 
that he'd made. And we'll talk about those as we go through. So let me read you a couple of things. Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, at just the right time, and the, the stage had been set, that intertestamental period was not wasted time, God may have been silent, but He was still working. He was working to put all the pieces, all the parts, all the people in place for His Son to come onto the scene, to fulfill the prophecies, the promises that people had wondered, is God even, does He even care anymore? Is He even able? They had gone on with life without God in some ways. One man wrote, But God did not speak suddenly, out of the blue, without some preparation. Christ was able to make the impact He did because God had prepared the world for Him and what He had to offer. And it's into that that Christ is born. And it's about that that Matthew writes. Now your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 1. Just turn a few pages to the right to Matthew chapter 9. Widely accepted and understood that Matthew is the author, although in the book he uh, never identifies himself as the author. He doesn't, you know, like the, the letters we read from Paul or James that begin, you know, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and Timothy. This is, a, this is a different type of literature. This is a narrative. It's a story. But I hesitate to use the word story because that sounds like fairy tale. This is not just a story. It's his story. It's history. And you'll see that as we go through the gene- genealogy. So when I say story, a better word would be this is a biography. It's a biography. It's not an autobiography. It's not about Matthew. Matthew wasn't concerned with writing about himself. Matthew was concerned with putting on paper the life and works of Jesus Christ. Genealogy, the first line of Matthew, and I'll get back to who Matthew is in a second. There's a reason you're in chapter 9. Stay right there. The first verse begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word genealogy is genesis, which means not just origin, but it can also mean life or existence. So it's the book of the life or the existence of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew hasn't written an exhaustive biography, meaning that not everything Jesus did and not everything that Jesus said is written here. John said it's probably impossible to write such a book. Jesus said and did so many things that if we tried to compile those into one story, it would be volumes and volumes. So this is not everything about Jesus. It's what God wanted us to know. Also, when Matthew set about to write, he wasn't as concerned with chronology, things being in the right order as we might be today. We tend to write and live chronologically. One event to the next event to the next event to the next event. The Jewish mind didn't work that way. The Jews grouped things together that were alike. That was typically what they were comfortable with. So you see in your Old Testament, you've got historical books together. You've got wisdom books together. You've got the the minor prophets all grouped together, even though chronologically, they're all kind of mixed in and stirred up. You know, this prophet speaks at this time in history, but the books in the Bible are separated by a number of books in between. So 
Matthew didn't write exhaustively. He didn't write chronologically. Who is this fellow Matthew? Well, all we know about him, the uh, majority of what we know about him, can be found right here in chapter 9. Look down at verse 9. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Matthew evidently was an IRS agent of his day. He was a tax man. Now, interestingly, the tax people worked for Rome. Rome was in charge. And this is the way it worked out. As a tax collector, you had a certain amount to collect that you were required to collect from the region you oversaw. Remember, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He oversaw a bunch of other tax collectors under him, probably a larger region. So Matthew oversees a region. He's responsible for collecting you know, X amount of dollars from that region. Now Matthew's salary doesn't come from the Roman government. Matthew's salary comes from what he is able to collect over and beyond and above what was required of him that he would turn over to the Romans. So if Matthew was collecting taxes and you came by his tax table and you owed $10 uh, tax for what you had, Matthew might charge you 20 10 went to Rome, 10 went into his pocket. So the tax collectors lived pretty well, but they were very hated by their own people. And you can see why. You can imagine why, right? Tax season will be just around the corner. And you'll utter some words that you probably shouldn't if you're a Christian at tax time. But that was this Matthew. And so Jesus sees him sitting at the tax table there in the tax office. And he speaks to him. All we have recorded, I don't know if they had a greater conversation than this or not, but we have this recorded. Jesus says, follow me. Maybe Matthew had been following the money. Maybe you, know, maybe you are or know someone who follows the money. Wherever the money is, that's where I want to be. And maybe that's what Matthew was like. And Jesus, something about the way Jesus talked to him. He believed it. And he gave up what he had. He gave up his income through the tax office. He gave up that life to follow this Jewish rabbi, this Jewish teacher. And he follows him. He arose, followed him. Verse 10 says, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. Whose house? Matthew's house. That behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. That's great. He gets saved, or he begins to follow Jesus, we'll say, and immediately he begins to invite the, his co-workers to know Jesus. That's great. And he invites them to sit together. And here's Jesus sitting with this group of people that were despised by the other Jews at the time. Look, you may feel, you may be, for one reason or another, not in favor, despised, by those that, uh, that you know, for one reason or another, for, for in your family, or at work. That doesn't bother Jesus one bit. Matter of fact, the, the more despised you are by the world, probably the more open you will be when Jesus says to you, follow me. What do I have to lose? You know, that's a, for some people, we're scared to be in that place. We want to make sure we've got all of our ducks in a row, all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted. But when you've got nothing, 
then what do you have to lose by following Jesus? So our problem is we've got too much to, to risk by following Jesus. Matthew said, hey, I'm willing to give it all up to follow Jesus. When the Pharisees saw it, verse 11, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And we'll get to that when we get to chapter 9. So that's Matthew. That's the life he lived. Interesting mix, the disciples of Jesus Christ. So Matthew was a disciple. The book he writes, as I said, it's not exhaustive. It's not chronological uh, in totality. It is a history of the life of Jesus Christ. Some, con- some interesting characteristics about his gospel compared to the others. Matthew's concern, Matthew's focus on the life of Christ is him as a king. As a king. Whereas uh, Luke has a different focus. He's writing to Greeks. Matthew is writing to primarily the Jews and what they would understand. That Jesus is the fulfillment of what they had been awaiting. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But he writes concerning uh, Jesus as the king. Matthew connects the dots for it. He wants to connect the dots from the old to the new. 129 Old Testament quotations or references. Oftentimes you'll see Matthew write, so that it might be fulfilled. So that it could be fulfilled what the prophets spoke. 129 times in 28 chapters, Matthew refers back to something in uh, that was written in or spoken about or referred to in the Old Testament. He wants them to know, he wants you to know, he wants me to know that our faith today, that this Christmas... Christianity is not some newfangled religion that started with uh, somehow in America or even with the Apostle Paul. So we get this concept that Christianity is a Western religion. It's not. It's a Middle Eastern walk of faith. It's a Middle Eastern lifestyle based on this man who claimed to be God, Jesus Christ. Matthew's the only gospel writer that uses the word church. No other gospel writers use the word church. Matthew uses that word twice in his gospel. So these are just some of the unique aspects. If I can give you a 30,000 foot airplane or helicopter view, what we're going to find in this gospel, the great majority of it, the great bulk of it, revolves around what Jesus said and what Jesus did. His teachings and his sayings. His actions and his words. We see his movement from Galilee to Capernaum to Nazareth to Egypt as a child and back. We see his, Matthew tracks his geographical movement. We see his conflicts with the religious leaders of the day. We see him challenge them. We see them challenged by him as they try to and decide to put him to death to get rid of this troublemaker. Chapter 1, Jesus is born. Chapter 2, we see Jesus as a young child. Chapter 3 to chapter 4, we see Jesus as the beloved son. Chapter 4 all the way through 7, Jesus as the preacher. Chapter 8, Jesus as the healer. Chapter 10, Jesus as the source of power for ministry. Chapter 11, Jesus is bankrupt. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Just seeing if you're awake. Chapter 11, Jesus the traveling teacher. Chapter 26, Jesus the Christ. Chapter 27, Jesus the crucified king. Chapter 28, 
Jesus is alive. Chapter 23, many of you know it. If you ever thought Jesus was a wimpy guy that carried a lamb on his shoulders, in chapter 23, he lets go on the scribes and the Pharisees. He confronts them about their hypocrisy. He was not mincing his words. He was very direct, very straightforward. He was not a wimp. He was very strong in his conviction. He came to bear witness to what? The truth. And he was not afraid to confront someone who was not being truthful or who was getting in the way of people coming to the true and living God. Chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom. Jesus speaks to the people in parables, putting uh, this truth that they understand alongside a truth he was trying to teach them. Powerful chapter, challenging to understand. We'll have a good time with that. So we have a lot of great things over the next year to look forward to. I'm very excited about this book, about this um, narrative of the life of Jesus Christ. And every so often we talk about Paul, we talk about James. It's just good to get back and let's look at the life of Jesus. And I believe, just as James was transformational for us, I believe that Matthew also, through his writings and through his record and through our reading of, of this narration, if your hearts are open, if they are like the good seed, I believe this will bring fruit in your life too. Amen? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, begins the book of the genealogy, or the life, or the origin of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, you know what comes next, and maybe you read ahead and you knew we were starting Matthew, and maybe you dreaded coming this morning. We're going to read a genealogy. Some of you have done that. You've started in Genesis chapter 1 and you got to chapter 5 and you got the genealogy there and you, and you haven't read your Bible since. You know, So you're thinking, oh, genealogy. What in the world are we going to study this for? I'm not going to go into a lot of depth here, but it is quite rich. I'll make some highlights as we go through. But right away, Matthew connects Jesus to two people, David and Abraham. And there's a reason. David was, as we said, the king. And it was to David that God made a promise. What we call a covenant, an agreement. But David didn't have a part to play in it. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's hanging out in his beautiful house. And he looks around and he said, Man, this isn't fair. I'm dwelling in this really nice house. I got this cool crib. And God lives in a tent. God's in the tabernacle. Right? That's where the Ark of the Covenant, that's where God's presence is. It's a, it's, a, it's a tent, it's portable. And David says, you know, this isn't right. We've got to do something better for God. And I love that heart of David, who said, you know what? I'm looking around my house and I'm thinking, this Christmas, I got it all. I, I'm so blessed. When is the last time you did that? You looked around and you said, you know what? I'm so blessed, I want to do something to bless God. I want to do something to bless God. And David dreamed big. He wanted to build God this a temple. And God said, you know, David, I appreciate that. It's a wonderful sentiment. But I've never asked for a temple. And, and eventually I'm going to have one, but you're not going to build it. And he said, but, but to honor that, to honor that sentiment, to honor that heart that wants to bless me, David, instead, this is so the nature of God, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bless you instead. You want to build me a house? Guess what, David? I'm going to build you a house. But he didn't mean a physical, literal house. What he meant was a generation, a family, uh, of kings. 
And this is what he said in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed. Your seed. That's singular. That speaks of future generations, right? But it's singular. Paul will make the connection to us for us with Christ. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body through your, your lineage. Ultimately, everybody that was a king came from David's body through genetics, right? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's a dual thing being looked at here. There's Solomon on one hand, but the greater fulfillment of that is in Christ. There's a near fulfillment in Solomon, but then there's a distant fulfillment in Christ. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Christ didn't commit iniquity, but what did he do? He bore our iniquity. And he was chastened, just as the Bible says, by the rod of men, with the blows of the sons of men. But mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house, listen to this, pay attention, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established for how long? For a couple of years? Forever. Through the intertestamental period, despite the fact that an Edomite is on the throne in King Herod, God said, I have not forgotten my promise. And although it may seem like I'm not fulfilling it, I'm still faithful. And there will be someone from Jacob's line, someone that descends all the way down to Abraham, to whom God said, through your seed all the nations will be blessed, and that will be from David's family. So just I know this is boring history stuff. But man, you can't get it unless you understand this to some degree. So that's why Matthew says, the son of David, because Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He's the ultimate king above all other kings. And that's what Matthew is trying to show us, that he is the rightful heir of the royal line of the eternal kingship that was spoken about by God to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Do you see, we are linked to a huge history of mankind in our faith of Christianity. I heard a story a while ago that a Muslim man, in reading Matthew chapter 1, gave his life to Christ. You think, oh, boring ge genealogy. He gave his life to Christ because I said, he said the Christian faith is based in world history. It's not a myth. It's not a story. Peter would say, we didn't follow cunningly de devised old wives' tales or fables, but we saw him. We heard God say from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So it's linked. David, Abraham. All right, hang with me here. You ready? Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's an interesting story that I won't elaborate on. There, uh, Tamar kind of tricked Judah into uh, sexual intimacy with her. Uh, and yet there she is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Interesting story. Perez got Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. 
Salmon begot Boaz. Now there's a name many of you know. Boaz by who? Rahab. What was Rahab's occupation? She was a prostitute. She was a Gentile. And there she is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, a Moabitess, also a foreigner. You know, through the New Testament, what we will see is those that have faith as Jesus is preaching, it's the Gentiles. The Jews should be the ones to believe and be ready to, but it's the Gentiles, it's the non-Jews that are seeing what Jesus is doing and they're accepting. It was the Rahabs and it was the Ruths. That connection between Jesus Christ, he's not just the Jewish king. He's not just related to them. But there is a relation through his lineage even to the Gentile nations. And that's what he said to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In him. And Jesse begot David the king. Uh, Now, David didn't start out as the king, did he? David was the shepherd. He was the little shepherd boy. And Saul had been uh, deposed from his throne by God. And, and Samuel was mourning and weeping over this. And God said to Samuel, Samuel, what are you doing? I mean, get up, quit. How long are you going to mourn over Saul? Get some oil in your horn. In other words, fill up your bottle with anointing oil. We've got work to do. I need you to go to the house of Jesse. And Jesse had all these sons that he brought. And Samuel said, oh, I'm here, I'm going to... Anoint the next king and show me your sons. And all the big older sons come through, the big tough guys. You know, oh, that's got to be the king, Samuel says. And God says, no, that's not him. All, one, two, three, four. All the sons of Jesse come by. And Samuel goes, he's going, God, is that him? No, that's not him. No, not him. No, okay, that's not him either. And it's like Jesse ran out of sons. And Samuel says, well, what are we going to do now? You know, where, hey, Jesse, are there any other kids, any other sons? well, we got this young guy. He's just a little runt of a guy. He's a shepherd boy. He's out in the field tending the sheep. Samuel says, bring him to me. So he brings him in. He says, ah, that's it. That's it? What do you mean? that? He's the king? Yeah, he's the one. But he doesn't look, but it doesn't seem right. God says to Samuel, he says, Samuel, look, God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So when we, when we read King David here, recognize that he was shepherd David until God put a call on his life. Three types of people would be anointed. The priests were anointed. The kings anointed. The prophets anointed. David, the king, that's... Jesse's, I mean, excuse me, that's Jesus' great, 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 grandfather. All right, all these greats around here. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who was that? Bathsheba. Now Solomon wasn't the firstborn of David. He had a number of sons that were killed. But yet, David blows it. Look, listen to me close. Again, all these Christmas lessons. David blows it big time. By committing adultery with Bathsheba, their first son dies. But they have another son.
whose name is Solomon. And I almost feel like God is speaking to us when we read David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. It's like, oh, that could be a railing. Like, ooh, that hurts. But yet, it's almost like God is saying, when you confess, when you repent, I will use even your mistakes for my glory. So, big bummer, big blew it, David. Big mistake. But God says, I'm going to ultimately still use what you're doing, what you did. And I'm going to use that for the line of Jesus Christ. Solomon. Interesting. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. And Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. He went on a journey. No, he didn't. Uh, Your Jotham did. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah, there's a whole story behind him, and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. So about the time the nation was taken in captivity. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Anybody that wants to come up and read these for me would be more... Come on up, volunteers. Zerubbabel begot Abiad. Abiad begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azer. Azer begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eliezer. Eliezer begot Mathan. Mathan begot Jacob. We're getting close, folks. Hang in there. This is, we're, we're, we're now close to Joseph because Jacob begot Joseph. He was Joseph's father. Now look at the, the switch here. And I read that and I want to point this out to you. Look here. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. You see the switch that happens there? We don't say, and Joseph begot Jesus, who was the Christ. Why doesn't it say that? Because Joseph didn't begot anything regarding Jesus. Joseph was sort of his stepfather. And, and clearly Matthew is showing us that right here. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Jesus' name, it's the Old Testament version, would have been Joshua, Jehoshua, Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. Salvation means to be rescued. In other words, if you're going to be rescued, it's going to come through Jehovah or through God, through uh, Yahweh or some would pronounce it. And he's called the Christ. Uh, Now that's not, as many have said, that's not his last name. It's not Jesus Christ like Steve Fedden or Frank Signoretti. Jesus is his name. Christ is is his title, not his title really, it's more of um, his calling, his role. He is the anointed one. Last week in James, we talked about uh, let those who are sick call for the elders, let the elders anoint with oil. And we talked about the common word for anointing, meaning to rub with oil. This is the ceremonial word. This is used of the priests, used of the kings. He is the anointed one. The ceremonially speaking, the one chosen and called by God for a specific purpose. He is the Christ. Him and no other would be the implication here. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Ah, we did it. We did it. Now anybody who slept through that, wake up now. Because now we get into the Christmas story specifically here. Now, verse 18 says, The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're looking back on this. We look back on it year after year, after Christmas, after Christmas, after Advent, after Advent. We know the story. There were many, like Anna and Simeon I mentioned before, that lived looking forward to this time. When the one that, that, that was the Messiah of their, their scriptures, the one they had read about, the one that God had promised, when he would finally show up. But right now, in this period that we're reading, it's being lived out real time. In other words, Joseph's not sitting down with Matthew's gospel and going, that's eh, all going to be all right. I read the end of the story. They're living this out real time, so you have to put yourself in their shoes. After his mother Mary was betrothed, this beautiful young Jewish girl named Mary, probably 14, 15, 16 years old. That was the age at which a young Jewish girl would be betrothed. A marriage could be, oftentimes was arranged between the parents of the groom-to-be and the parents of the bride-to-be, which I don't think is all that bad an idea sometimes. Uh, The parents would get together and say, hey, we share a certain set of beliefs, we share a certain set of morals and ideologies and you had a son and we had a daughter and we ought to get them together. And they betray- and so you didn't have a say in the matter. Now, some speculate that Joseph was a bit older, which would not have been uncommon even today in the Middle East. A very young girl, a Middle East, Africa, a very young girl can be betrothed in marriage to a much older man. Not uncommon uh, in the Middle East or in Africa and other parts of the world. The word betrothed, we would the closest thing we have to understand that is an engagement. But it was much more than that, because look what happens next. He says, um, verse 19, then Joseph, her husband. So although they were engaged, they were betrothed, this was a legally binding relationship. For a year, they would be engaged, but that didn't mean they could still kind of see what else was out there and maybe change their mind. For that year of betrothal, although they were officially married, They did not live together. They did not consummate the marriage during that time at all. They lived each in their parents' houses. So it was a very legally binding time. And officially speaking, they were married. And here's where the problem arises, folks. Something happens to Mary. She gets this visit from an angel. And the angel delivers to her a very unnerving message that she is going to become pregnant. Wait a second. I'm a young girl. I'm betrothed. This is an inconvenient time, God. What will people say? What will my parents think? Oh, Mary, oh, Mary, we thought we did such a good job raising her. Where did we go wrong? You know, she's pregnant out of wedlock. She could be stoned to death for that. Forget about her parents. What about her husband? What's he going to say? And at some point, she has to spill the beans. She has to tell them, that she's pregnant. 
I'm not sure if I'm Joseph, I'm taking that so well. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm beginning to think, all right, you know, what do we do now? How did this happen? What do we do with this? What a girl Mary was. Despite the cost, she says, behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Lord, I am your servant. And if this is what you want to do, whatever it costs, you do it. Let it be done unto me. Do it to me, Lord. Put that seed in me. Fantastic. And she sings a song right out of the, the mouth of Hannah in, in 1 Samuel when Hannah couldn't give birth. My soul magnifies the Lord, she writes, just like Hannah did when she became pregnant. So she's a, a woman, a girl that's steeped in the Scriptures, young ladies in here. Charm is deceitful and beauty fades, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And the Bible says of Mary that all generations will call her blessed. You too, as a young woman, all generations can call you blessed. Your, your beauty will fade. Your charm will, will be deceitful and can be deceitful. But if you fear the Lord, if you get into that relationship with God where you honor Him, you respect Him, certainly you, like Mary, will be praised. She was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. This was a spiritual, it's a, it's a miracle. There's no other way to put it. This is a miracle. And if you don't like miracles, you've got a hard time with the Bible. Because this is flat out a miracle. Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. I mean, I don't want to see, I love her. I know she messed up, you know, at least that's what he's thinking right now. But I don't want to see her hurt. So, he's not one to make her an example of her, which is maybe what I would have done. But look, while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. While he thought about these things, he's taking the time to think it through. Folks, look, be careful when you just react. Because you and I, we were there, we might have just reacted. I know what I've got to do. It's got to be done right away. I've got to do it now. Instead, Joseph took the time to think. And it was in that thinking time that God was able to speak to him. Too many of us, too many of you, are quick to react. You just you react quickly. You go on instinct. You just Your gut speaks and you follow it. And I'm telling you today to be like Joseph. I've never regretted waiting. I've often regretted acting quickly in making that decision, in saying that thing, in dealing with that issue. Oftentimes, I regret acting too quickly. If Joseph had acted quickly, I wonder if he would have regretted it. You think? I think so. But he took the time, he thought it through, he thought it out, he hammered it out in his mind. And it was at that time when his mind was open to hearing from God that God spoke to him. And he appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. See, again, the betrothal. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I'm glad God said it, because if it was just Mary saying it, well, gee, Joseph, you know, it, it was God. Oh, yeah, right. Come on. I mean, what do you think? I was born yesterday? So God had to confirm by the mouth of two or three witnesses a matter's established. So God brings himself in as a second witness to say, Joseph, Mary is telling you the truth. Gulp. She is? Yeah, she is. 
So don't be afraid. He was afraid to take her as his wife. He says, don't be afraid. She will bring forth the son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated, read it, God with us. God, Not God against us. Not God apart from us. God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop here, having left verses 22 to 25 incomplete, so to speak, from an exposition standpoint, I'm going to let you go home and consider those verses for Christmas. And then next Sunday when we come back with with Christmas fresh in our hearts, we'll go through and we'll see just exactly what's happening in the context of the history and in the context of Isaiah chapter 7. So for homework, here's my challenge for you. I want you to read Isaiah chapter 7. And, let's see if I can find it quickly here. 1 Kings, well, 2 Kings chapter 16, I believe it is. Second, so your homework, Isaiah chapter 7, 2 Kings chapter 16. And that will give you some of the background about what God was saying through Isaiah when he first uttered that prophecy about the virgin giving birth. You with me? All right, let's pray.